Mr. William Peck's man Ned for cutting down weeds and grass and piling the same in the public square. Hire of Peter the Carpenter for one month. Labor done by my man Squire on the State House Square. All three labored towards construction of the North Carolina State House and State Capitol, symbols of democracy and freedom. All three were enslaved. Welcome to Connecting the Docks, a podcast sharing true stories from the old North State using materials found in the State Archives of North Carolina. Taking us through these stories and more, here's your host, John Horan. Welcome to a somber episode of Connecting the Docks. I'm John Horan, and I'm your host. Today we are joined by three guests from the archives, regular guest Josh. Thanks, John. Alex. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on the podcast. You're welcome. Caroline. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. This episode is the first in a three-part series where we uncover stories from the archives that have rarely been acknowledged. Each in some way represents profound strength within a system that consistently failed to recognize women and people of color for their contributions to the state of North Carolina. Uh, Today, we're diving into an unlikely place, the financial records in the treasurer's and comptroller's papers. Uh, I say unlikely because it doesn't, you know, just seems like ledgers and money to me, but what's going on here? Yeah, so this is actually really interesting. We have this record group. It's called the Treasurer's and Comptroller's Papers. Um, And it's actually a legacy collection. So these are some of the earliest records that we have in North Carolina. They actually came to the North Carolina Historic Commission, which was a precursor to archives and history in the 1920s. And so it's a collection that we've had for a while. Um, When it was processed in the 1960s, you know, description was pretty, you know, routine what you'd expect. You know, there'd be series about ledgers or capital buildings. So it's a lot of financial records. And so with the America 250 celebration coming up, we decided this would be a really good record group to reprocess. And one of the reasons we wanted to reprocess this was because in financial records, you can find a lot of references to peoples and groups that might not otherwise be like leaving written records. So for example, you know, you might have people selling like charcoal to, you know, people who are working on building the capital and they're they're not able to sign their name. They're just leaving an X, which is would have been their mark. So these are people who wouldn't be leaving written records. Um, you also have the opportunity to come across women if they have, you know, contributed or sold, um, you know, something to, you know, help with this, um, you know, the construction or the upkeep of these buildings. And then there's also the opportunity to find records of enslaved labor on these buildings. And so, you know, when we started this project, we didn't actually know what we were going to find. But we thought that looking at financial records would be a really great opportunity from I guess a social history perspective to really come across these groups who like weren't the governor, weren't assembly men who were, you know, leaving their personal papers and really see other groups, you know, interacting and building these things that are symbols of American democracy. And I think it's especially powerful when we come across the enslaved laborers who are working away to build this state capital. And so the project was designed um, with that kind of approach in mind. So it was essentially a catch-all for financial records initially. Um, And so as we designed the project and approached processing each of the series, um, especially if something had like dated to around the American Revolution and we thought we might want to use it for America 250, we really took the extra time to like to look in the folders, you know, flip through and go through the records with this eye towards groups and people who might have been left out um, when the bicentennial had been celebrated in 1976. Because, you know, a lot of the description really doesn't draw attention to series where there might have been enslaved labor. So that was something we really wanted to focus on. So as we went series by series, we took a little extra time as we we're going through the folders. And you know, Caroline will be able to talk a little bit more about this for some of the series that she processed to really draw out, keep track of when we came across enslaved labor and find ways in our description to bring these groups and the contributions they have made to North Carolina history to light. 
and I do want to add that from the reference perspective, um, we had an idea, an inkling of some of this in the Capitol Building series, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out that staff from this, the Capitol Building have done research in the Treasures and Comptroller's papers prior to reprocessing and found some of this information. But we knew there was going to be something, which is why it was chosen as a project. And uh, behind the scenes curtain a little bit, I'm the head of the Records Description Unit. Alex and Caroline are in the Records Description Unit. It's been our project within our unit. Um, and we knew there was going to be some of this. But the extent that we found and where we found it blew us away. Yeah, that's a good point, Josh. You know, I think looking and knowing we're working with financial records is an opportunity to capture, you know, other groups of people we who hadn't been in sort of this historic traditional narrative. We were hoping to find things, but we didn't actually know what we'd find. And I think we were all a little surprised by sort of, you know, the extent and the breadth and the depth of these um you know, areas, especially, and, you know, Caroline can talk a little bit more, we actually, when we were processing confiscated lands, you know, we were thinking, oh, confiscated lands, but that's actually confiscated lands and property. So there was um, references and names of some enslaved uh, people who were part of these confiscated lands. So something as seemingly innocuous as a series like that, we were I guess hoping to find more references to groups that we, you know, weren't really highlighted. But I think we were surprised by the extent. Yeah. So, Carolyn, you've been referenced a couple of times, but I haven't heard your voice yet. So why don't you tell us your part of this piece? Uh, sure. So as Alex has said, um, I did a lot of the physical processing of a lot of these series. So I was the one hands-on looking through all the pieces of paper and looking for names of enslaved people and where we might find them. Um, one of the more, I guess, surprising series that I processed was the Port series. Um, so in the Treasure and Comptroller's papers, there's a series of records of North Carolina's colonial and early American ports. And in these records, we found evidence of the maritime um, trans-American and trans-Atlantic um, trafficking of enslaved people through our ports. Um, so we don't really know the exact number of enslaved people who would have been trafficked through our ports during this time. Um, but in the records, I counted at least 1,064 people named in these records. Um, of course, there were you know, records that could have been lost over time. Uh, we might not have received them for some reason. Um, and also, we know that there was a robust network of smuggling and tradition of smuggling in colonial America and early America. So I'm sure there was a lot more enslaved people coming through our ports and to our shores um, that aren't documented. Um, but basically, in the port series, they contain a lot of shipping accounts and tax lists of all, all of the imports and the exports that are coming into our ports. Um, and this gives a snapshot of the types of commerce that are happening at these ports. So you will find shipping accounts of like barrels of rum, um, ballast of ships that are coming in, fabric, coffee. And then in the same list, you'll see names of enslaved people or descriptions of enslaved people that are also coming in. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, these records aren't giving us a huge amount of description of these people. So we might every now and then get their names, but that's pretty rare. We might get their gender, their approximate age. But mostly what we're getting is um, how many people were coming in, where they're coming from, what their port of origin is. So a lot of folks are being trafficked from um, other colonies, so like Virginia, South Carolina, Massachusetts. Um, and some people were coming from places like Barbados, the Bahamas, um, and some even from Africa, although they don't note the exact port in Africa. Um, and also we'll get like the name of the ship, the captain of the ship, how much is being paid, and then also the amount of tax being paid on the import of these people. It's one of those ironies that the port series has been pulled a lot by researchers over time who are looking for their white ancestors because they assume that the port records will have manifests of passengers who are immigrating to the United States or to the colonies depending on the time period of the record. That's not as common in the ports records and treasures and comptrollers. But the ironic thing is that we're finding these documents of um, African descendant 
persons in these records, um, which was a place that African-American researchers had tended not to look for genealogical purposes because the finding aid that Alex talked about from the 50s didn't mention enslaved persons as part of the cargo, um, certainly not by name. So it's one of those reasons that we've done the project and we're happy to add in and change the description so that people know that that's something they can find now. Uh, and actually within the context of the, the ports, uh, Caroline found some interesting material relating to the Dismal Swamp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think one of the most notable events that's documented in the import accounts is the forcible import of 80 enslaved Africans um, directly from West Africa. Um, and I think the year was 17, 1786. Um, and they were imported from West Africa by enslavers for the purpose of digging um, the Dismal Swamp Canal. So for folks who don't know what the Great Dismal Swamp is, it's a large swamp in the northeastern part of North Carolina and the southeastern part of Virginia. So it's on the Virginia-North Carolina border. And basically in 1784, there were three plantation owners and enslavers in Edenton by the names of Josiah Collins, Nathaniel Allen, and Samuel Dickinson, who formed the Lake Company. And the purpose of the Lake Company was to develop the land in and around the Great Dismal Swamp, particularly to allow trade between the Chesapeake Bay and the Albemarle Sound in North Carolina. The Dismal Swamp is fascinating because um, it, this isn't, of course, this isn't the only place that it comes up. Uh, it, it comes up in, in very much on the other side of this equation in a number of records um, in, in terms of, uh, we have a couple of oral histories talking about people escaping um, through the Dismal Swamp and finding ways. Uh, in fact, we had our uh, last, se last season, we had a, a, a discussion with Dr. David Soselsky uh, just about this uh, and Abraham Galloway and working through the Dismal Swamp and, and all of that. So it's interesting to see that it, it played both sides. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Dismal Swamp, is, and it's not, I mean, it has North Carolina significance, but it also has national significance. Several prominent um, early Americans, Virginians, invested in the development of the infrastructure of the Dismal Swamp. There was a lot of money that went into trying to build a railroad through the Great Dismal Swamp over time. So a lot of the money that was going into the Great Dismal Swamp for infrastructure, for dredging, was actually to by the enslaved persons who were going to actually do the labor of putting in the rail tracks and dredging the swamp. And I mean, it's ironic that all that labor went into it. And even today, most of the dismal swamp is not <laughs> used as an industrial area. I mean, it's still quite dismal. Um, and I don't mean that, you know, in any sort of flip way, but it's, it is one of the more untamed swamp areas. It's a lot of natural wildlife areas in northeastern North Carolina yeah. still. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. And I think this is, you know, a really important example of how um, the government either directly or indirectly used enslaved labor for large internal improvement projects. Um, so when this canal was finished, and so we had 70 people were imported, um, on the brig Camden during this time and then the next March that same ship went back to Africa and got 80 more people um, so there was at least 150 people who were trafficked through our ports um, to, for the purpose of hand digging this canal um, and when it opens in 1805 it opens a trade route between Virginia and North Carolina um, so there were definitely direct benefits to the North Carolina government through you know, the slave labor, they're receiving, you know, the taxes on the imports. Um, but also there's this indirect, um, I guess, benefit as well because the North Carolina economy is being boosted. Um, yeah, that's a good point you made, Caroline, because I wanted us to, to mention this. These records are documenting the who built North Carolina, really. Uh, who built a lot of the infrastructure, who built the state house, the state capital, um, who was involved in all these transactions. And it's not just the rich um, enslavers, it's the enslaved. And 
they're being mentioned here either in lists like the Dismal Swamp or by name in, in a lot of these records like we heard at the very beginning from Alex. Um, and, and obviously the example that stands out in terms of just pure symbolism, uh, if you want to mention talk about this, Alex, is just the Capitol building. Because as you mentioned at the beginning, it's a symbol of freedom, and yet it was built on the backs of enslaved labor. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's one of those as I guess Josh puts it, you know, great ironies, you have this building, the state, first the state house and then the state capitol building that really are these symbols of, you know, American democracy and freedom. Um, And then, but at the same time, you know, if you think about the people who are actually doing the physical, um, you know, construction of these buildings, you have enslaved labor or like day laborers who aren't able to sign their name and might just be able to leave their mark. So it really, I think, shows, you know, when you learn about something like the State House or the State Capitol building that, you know, there's all this work being done, I don't want to say behind the scenes, but like, you know, who's building this, the physical building that becomes this, you know, ideological symbol of democracy. And there are a lot of examples in the uh, financial records for this series. They actually have records for most aspects of building or either building or repairing the state house and then the later state capitol. There are records of people who are hauling supplies from like Petersburg and Virginia or, you know, from Fayetteville. There's the people who are working in the lime quarries, people who are doing the physical labor. Um, And in a lot of cases, we are seeing some names of enslaved people who were working. Unfortunately, we're not given a lot of information. In some cases, it really might just be as simple as William William Peck's man, Ned. Um, Ned worked in June 1829 on the State House, and he was paid $3 for four days' labor, cutting down weeds and grass. And so he was basically helping construct this well in... um, it was Union Square near the State House. And so in some cases, we also have examples where there's references to likely enslaved laborers, but we don't have their names. So for example, in November of 1834, there's a receipt for just doing work cleaning the governor's house. Um, And a man named Richard Ashton was paid $3.60 for the labor of, it just says hire of hands for purpose of cleaning the governor's house. So we don't know who these people were who were cleaning it, but they were doing the physical labor of upkeeping the residence of the governor. And uh, Richard Ashton was the one who was paid for this work. Uh, There's also references to after the old state house burned down, they needed some people to just clear away the debris. And one of the people who helped labor clear to clear these debris was Squire. Um, he was his enslaver was Augustus Mordecai, and there's a receipt from April 1833 for um, when he did this work. And from that same year, 1833, we also have a another document that sort of it amasses like large totals, so you don't see the specific names, um, but there is an entry for paying the wages of hands employed in removing the rubbish of the old state house. Um, it's not always clear who these hands were. It may, be, may have been a mix of enslaved labor, like Squire, and then potentially um, free laborers. It doesn't really break it down in that one, but there were definitely people doing the physical labor of carrying out the debris of this old state house before um, the state capitol could be built. And, and presumably the people who were free, if there were, would have been paid directly, and the people who were enslaved, the enslaver got paid. Exactly. So we actually have records that talk about that. Um, I had mentioned Peter the Carpenter in the introduction. Um, his enslaver was John Marshall, who was paid for his work, and it's one of a series of many receipts, and you can see there's a, there's a distinction, because there are some people who either signed their name or left their mark, and it says they're paid for my labor and then there are another whole other group of them where it's hire of in the person's name or we'll just say you know my man or my boy you know very so we can assume they're talking about one of their enslaved people unfortunately we don't have all of 
you know, the names of who those people might have been. So you're exactly right. There's this big distinction between my labor and then the labor of someone else. So I do want to clarify here, um, you know, for modern researchers who aren't as familiar with these records, if they see the phrase hired out, they might assume that that meant the enslaved person had agency to go choose to take the job because that's how you would apply for employment today. But that's a euphemism in this time period. It basically means the enslaver has ordered his enslaved person to go work on this project, whether it be the Dismal Swamp or the Capitol or whatever, for, and then the enslaver gets the money from the project. So hired out just means, you know, hired out for the enslaver has, has done the contracting, essentially. It's, it's, so don't use modern employment thoughts for that phrase. It's a very common phrase. Sure, and in this in this more general vein, and on that disclaimer, I'm interested: is this a North Carolina story, or it is, or is it more than just North Carolina? Do we know? It's an American story. Yeah, say say more about that. I mean, I, this so it was a pretty common practice to hire out your slave labor um, as a way to kind of you know receive extra income. Um, so I think when people think about slavery, they're thinking about, well, there were certain people who were enslavers and certain people who were not. But in reality, everyone who you know lived in the slave system, they were interacting with it in some way. So even if you know North Carolina didn't own these enslaved people, they were hiring them out from private citizens, they're still interacting with that system. So even if you didn't personally own slaves yourself, you might have hired out th- that, those laborers. Um, so it's a lot more complex than people think. Well, and, and to that point, um, even your, you know, North Carolina was known as the most impoverished state in the early 19th century. Um, but even to that extent, if, even if you were a poor white family, if you lived in, let's say, Johnston County, if you went to the courthouse over a road, that road may have been uh, plowed or put together by enslaved labor. If you, you know, had to go to Raleigh for something with the General Assembly, I'm sure the transportation may have been provided by an enslaved driver. The sculptures you saw may have been sculpted by enslaved hands. So everybody who lived in society was a part of this enslaved economy, even if they did not own slaves themselves, including, as Caroline wisely pointed out, the state itself. That is, these are all great points, and I just, it's really fascinating to learn more about the, the national context and North Carolina's uh, involvement in the national context. And we'll get back to some more specific stories, uh, particularly as it, as it uh, pertains to the Capitol building. Um, but real quick, a short break. Attention podcast listeners, we are thrilled to announce new additions to the ACOC Brown Photographs Digital Collection on the NCDC website. Come explore the Outer Banks through the lens of the iconic North Carolina native photographer, Acock Brown. He documented the region's evolution from the 1940s onward, covering everything from aerial shots of the islands to beach and fishing scenes, daily life of the locals to publicity shots for restaurants, theater events, and other landmarks worth visiting. Witness the evolution of this coastal gem as it transformed into a popular tourist destination. But wait, that's not all. This ongoing project promises even more images throughout the year, so there's always something fresh to uncover. Don't miss out on this treasure trove of history. Visit the North Carolina Digital Collection site today. All right, welcome back to Connecting the Docs. Um, we're, we're going through the treasurer's and comptroller's papers. Um, I promised that we would talk about specific stories, so we will talk about specific stories. So where, is, where are we going to start? Well, I think one of the places we could start at could be the Capitol building um, in the State House. And I think this goes nicely with our conversation earlier about some of the complexities and things that we're coming across. Uh, One of these things being that, you know, enslaved labor doesn't always mean that it's unskilled labor. And this is something that we're seeing across the treasurer's and comptroller's papers. And one specific example would be Peter the Carpenter. Uh, he, his enslaver was uh, John Marshall, and John Marshall was paid in August of 1821 $19.45 um, for Peter's work for repairs to the State House. 
uh, that was for the full month of August. And I think it's also interesting because there are additional receipts for this time period. And you could see there was a laborer who was just doing, you know, physical labor. And that person was paid $1.25 for his work in, you know, in state house repairs in 1821. And then if you compare that to, you know, the amount that John Marshall was making for Peter the carpenter who had this skilled trade who was working, you can really see the difference. And so Peter the Carpenter also worked in September of 1821. Unfortunately, we don't actually know that much aside from his name and the fact that he was a carpenter because that was how he is referred to on this receipt. In this same series, there are some other references to um, enslaved workers who were also carpenters. So it seems that in addition to having enslaved labor come and do some of the more physical work, like either clearing out debris of the old state house and that type of work, there were skilled carpenters who came in and were, I guess the term would be hired out, even though, you know, that's may not have been their agency to be doing this, um, you know, but they were hired to do this skilled labor and then their enslaver was the person who was getting this money for the skilled work. I think it's important to point this out because the misconception I think in a lot of of enslaved labor often is that it was only ever on plantations or agricultural settings and there were obviously plantations in North Carolina, but not as many as the surrounding states. But even in those states where you had plantations, a lot of enslaved persons didn't labor on major agricultural plantations. They were laboring in cities or laboring in industrial settings. And these are some examples where not only are they laboring in an urban setting, building the state capital uh, from scratch, they're also doing artisan work. I mean, it's the kind of work that you would probably have called this uh, called the carpenter a skilled tradesman if he were free in this time period. Um, but the fact that he wasn't free, it it's fascinating to think how he may have gotten these skills, because you know a white person in this time period probably would have been an apprentice to a carpenter, would have been raised in carpentry, would have taken it on as their profession. We don't know how he was trained or where he learned his skills. But obviously, he was quite good to you know to make these repairs to the state capitol building. So it's one of those archival silences that are inevitable when dealing with enslaved persons and, and people of color more generally in this time period that we can speculate as to how he became a carpenter. did he did he have an interest in this trade or was it foisted upon him uh, by his enslaver? We don't know. But suffice it to say, this record is critically important for documenting his contributions, I mean, his skilled, trained contributions to the, to the Capitol construction. We're talking about quite a few things here with the Capitol building, um, but surely there are other records involved, especially in something so broad as treasurers and comptrollers. Well, yeah, exactly. Now, there's a lot of other series in treasurers and comptrollers, and a lot of those series have enslaved labor in them. And I think one of those series that at first glance seems pretty innocuous, but has actually got a lot of this information, is one Caroline process called internal improvements. Sure, and we've already talked a little bit about internal improvements, but there's and internal improvements are discussed throughout the treasurers and comptrollers papers um, in pretty much every series, but um, for some reason there's an artificial series only on internal improvements, and this includes like the development of canals, the development of some railroads, the Board of Internal Improvements for the state, um, but in these records, we see what are called payrolls for the laborers who are working on these projects. Um, so some of these laborers, as we said, they are free laborers. So it'll say this is their salary for this amount of work, and this is what they did. Um, and then also there will be lists of enslaved people, and then next to it will say these are the slaves of so-and-so. So it'll list the enslaver's name, and then it will have the amount of money that enslaver is making off their labor. Um, so just as Alex was talking about a little bit earlier, um, the salary in quotations that is being you know earned by these laborers, it's going to their enslaver. Um, 
But also in the internal improvement series, we have evidence of additional labor taken on by enslaved workers, um, probably on their own volition. So in this series, there are accounts of enslaved workers that were, in quotes, hired by the companies such as the Cape Fear and Deep River Navigation Company. So these enslaved workers would have been working on, you know, digging the canals um, and projects associated with that. So, for example, in November 1859, um, a Tom Bryan was paid for three days of work, quote, allowed him by his master and $12 for his meritorious conduct as a foreman of carpenters. Um, So you can see that he was clearly a skilled laborer, as we were talking about earlier, but also he's receiving additional money um, that hopefully we can assume is going directly to him. And then we have other instances of enslaved workers being paid for work during holiday times and for Sunday. Um, So for many enslaved persons, Sundays and holiday time might have been the only time they were allowed a break or they were allowed to visit their family on other plantations. So um, they were perhaps paid um, directly for this work. Oh, I'm sorry. You're saying Sunday time. So Sunday time would have been a break, Mm -hmm. but then they were working instead and therefore they would have gotten paid directly um possibly okay so like typically you know enslaved workers you know a typical schedule would be working you know throughout the week they might have sundays off and they can use that time as they you know wish um so sometimes you would see enslaved workers like taking up extra work on sundays and being paid for that work yeah in, in agricultural settings it wasn't it wasn't uncommon for enslaved persons to have their own garden that they would tend during the week and then like at night and then on Sunday would be when they do a lot of the harvesting uh, for their like, growing their own crops for their own sustenance uh, or like Caroline said uh, it's, it wasn't uncommon to do small jobs were they getting paid the same as a, as a white laborer absolutely not mm-hmm. uh, but they could earn a little bit of money and they could either use it to buy some goods potentially from their enslaver or in the town if they're in an urban setting uh, there are cases earlier on where enslaved persons could build up enough money to essentially buy their freedom mm. from their enslaver, uh, but we're talking a lot of money, and it'd yeah. be a lot of Sundays sure. in order to make that happen. So while that did happen, I think it's more common in like portrayals of right. enslaved life than than the reality. And we'll actually be talking about more of the manumission process in our next episode. Sure, sure. Um, but in in this case, is it would it? I mean, would it have been possible? Uh, you have to excuse my uh, ignorance on this, but would it have been possible for the enslaver to say, "Okay, I've got you from Saturday to Friday, but I'm going to actually hire you out on Sunday and then take the money"? I don't think there were you know hard and fast rules with that. Um, in these records, we're seeing you know reference to his master allowed him to be here gave him a pass to be here so in these instances it seems like there is permission to do that extra work and keep it for themselves i would hope so i would assume so but you know there's not a lot of detail either way yeah yeah and as you know as caroline said the the laws regulating slavery in the early 19th century are um fluid yeah Uh, so there are some there might be a set statute, but how it's enforced, where it's enforced, is going to be different. Um, so it might have been that was the case for these laborers. There might be some other, some other enslaver who is, you know, hiring out their workforce or their enslaved workforce, I should say, every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it really did vary. Varied, sure. So that is a little bit about the work week we're talking about. What about the family unit here? Sure. So you can see evidence of enslaved families and um, their family units um, in different series. So, for example, in the Lands, Estates, Boundaries, and Surveys series, um, you can see description of family groupings. Um, for, exa- for example, in Ambrose Bazell's estate records, you see reference to Paris and his wife Rose. You can also see poet Caroline and their children. You could see Sippo and Peggy and their two children. So I think it's really useful if we do see 
family groupings, you know, in these records that it's easier to track these families across time and then perhaps maybe even into the 1870s census. So I think that is very useful for genealogists who are trying to track their families into slavery and their ancestors that were enslaved. The fact that we're having some examples of children named in these records is um, incredibly valuable. Like I cannot overstate the value enough, especially if we get close enough where that person may show up later in the 1870 census, because that's when a lot of a lot of African-American genealogy hits a brick wall, the 1870 census, because going backward, you'd have to know where they were living enslaved and who was their enslaver. And if you go back even further, you probably won't even find. I mean, there were things called slave schedules on some of these censuses in the mid 20 mid 19th century. It's not the case when we go back even earlier in the early 19th or the late 18th century to have those enslaved persons would probably just be listed as a number, mm-hmm. the number of enslaved persons living in the household of the enslaver uh, because they still had to track enslaved persons because of the three-fifths clause in the Constitution. They're in the census, right. but they're not listed by name. Right. So having these records is incredibly valuable. And I think also... Um, you can use like family groupings to kind of get, can t- gather evidence of you know where your ancestors might have been. So if you see like say poet and Caroline and their children, and then you find what you who you think is their child in the 1870 census, and you see that oh they named their daughter Caroline, you can kind of kind of make some assumptions there that maybe that was a family name. That's another piece of evidence that it could be the same person. You know, we were talking about the census. We were talking about using the family name. That's one, albeit very um, unsatisfying way that, you know, enslaved people would interact with the government because it would just be a number, not a name oftentimes. What, this collection seems to show another side of it. So I'd be interested to know what's next for this collection, for this project. I think one of the things that, we initially started out to do was improving description in the finding aid um, and our catalog description. So from the 1960s processing, it's pretty focused on, I mean, I guess I would say sort of traditional archival description. You know, you have the series, so what type of record is it? You know, what type of financial record is it? You know, what is the, maybe the title of the volume or, you know, the name of a folder, which might just be, you know, pay warrants for, you know, hauling, like, rocks or, you know, like, basically the general thing of what it's been done. Like, for example, there is one folder that is just called um, State House Maintenance and Repairs. And from that title, you know, you can kind of get a general idea, okay, these are receipts for maintenance repairs, but you can't really tell what's in it. Or, you know, from some of Caroline's example, you know, ports, we would assume, yes, this is going to be records of, you know, shipping and imports and exports, that kind of thing. So one of the things that we really are trying to do is use the scope and content note and other ways in our catalog and description to bring attention to some of these records of either enslaved labor or for coming across women to just kind of put that in the catalog so people can notice like, oh, you know, it's yes, it's all these financial records, but I can find more information about enslaved labor in North Carolina, or, you know, I could find some information on, you know, women who may have, like, you know, sold some of these accounts or that kind of thing. So we're really hoping to use our description to make, at least give patrons a heads up. So that's kind of the initial, the initial goal and the sort of first step. Um, Some additional things that we're doing is um, digitizing the records. So certain of the series, especially the ones where we are coming across this enslaved labor, like the Capitol buildings, the port series, have been candidates to have digitized and made available on our digital collection. So that way, you know, it will be more easily accessible and discoverable. And then another thing we've talked about is this idea of creating like a lib guide or a research guide. And I think one of the things that's really great about um, LibGuides or research guides is that it's an opportunity to really highlight themes or topics that could get lost in traditional archival description. And so, for example, we just recently had one done on um, underrepresented groups in the General Assembly record. So looking at like American Indians, um, 
enslaved people and free people of color, women and other religious minorities. And we're hoping to do something similar with these treasure and comptrollers examples, most notably the enslaved uh, labor. And one of the things that's so great about a libguide is we can include the same record in multiple different categories. So for example, if we were going to do traditional archival description, if there was a, and I was just including a folder, but there happened to be multiple different enslaved laborers who show up in records in this folder, I wouldn't be able to just list that multiple different times. But if I was creating a libguide, I could really focus on these subjects and these names, and I could organize the information differently and in a way that really highlights, you know, the people that we are wanting to bring attention to in a way that is a little harder, I think, in traditional archival description, especially for state agency records that may have very unassuming titles like state house maintenance and repairs that doesn't really get to some of like the subjects and the, you know, stuff in there that we really want to highlight. And then, you know, so this libguide could be a really great, you know, starting point to really pull out all the areas in this record group where we're coming across, say, enslaved laborers and really putting that out there so researchers have a quick way to see, okay, you know, these are the folders that have these names, you know, these are maybe even some of the individual items or records that are, you know, mentioning enslaved labor. And then we also have another a spreadsheet that we've been working on, and I'll let Caroline talk about that because she's been doing a lot of work on this. Sure. So another thing we've been working on is a spreadsheet. We've been trying to document every instance of a um, name of an enslaved person is found in these records. Um, so it's still in the early stages, but so far we're documenting the date or the approximate date of of this when the record was made, the county, if possible, the name of the enslaved, the name of the enslaver, um, any third parties involved, and any other additional information that might be useful for genealogists or researchers. So hopefully one day soon that will be available in some form to the public. And I, I should say that if, you know, a listener thinks that they might have an ancestor in these collections, Please feel free to reach out to us. Um, you know, you can reach out to the gen to the search room, to the um, public services staff, and they can get you in touch with our our unit in records description. And as we make the spreadsheet, we're happy to check and see if we found anybody that fits your description at this point. Because, you know, we 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 are excited that these collections will have an impact, and we anticipate that they will for genealogy and historical research. So. If anyone has questions about these collections, please contact you know the three of us here in the records description unit because we we want to make sure that people see these collections. And I should say that first we actually are going to hear from the person who wrote that guide next week, uh, Hannah Nicholson. Uh, it will be in conversation with uh, Annabeth Poe, our podcast intern, next week about that guide. So I'm looking forward to hearing that. Um, but I also do want to clarify that there's other parts of Treasures and Comptrollers that we haven't even gotten to process yet that are going to be equally of interest. Uh, we have found some miscellaneous collections that Caroline's still working on that document some very difficult subjects, including a lot of state-sponsored executions of enslaved persons. Alex is um, planning on processing the series that has traditionally been called Indian Affairs. But reality, that collection is mostly documentation of white men being paid to go enact violence against American Indians in various expeditions. Um, so those are difficult collections, but they will be of interest, I presume, to genealogical and historical, um, for historical and genealogical research. And we will make sure that the finding aid reflects the true content of these collections as opposed to what was in there from the 1950s. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating, this, this re-examination of, of these finding aids and the content within, um, because what defines us is the good and the bad, and, and I think hiding the bad doesn't make us better. And so knowing all of it helps. And I'm, I'm interested, you know, we're talking about finding aids and, and libguides and spreadsheets, is this process, you know, standard across the archives, or is it something different? 
the process is different for every collection in records description unit. In this case, uh, and I'll clarify within the rest of the archives in a second, but within government records first, this is a unique collection because the finding aid that was made in the 1950s is incredibly detailed for what it chose to put emphasis on. I mean, it's nearly 100 pages of content, but it's focusing more on like the military records in the collection, um, how to do the genealogy for revolutionary soldiers that are because that's other parts of TNC. And so what it emphasized was certain parts of the collection. And we're doing a more holistic approach now to make sure that all aspects of the collection are covered. A lot of times when we process collections, there is no existing finding aid. We're processing it for the very first time. And that's actually Alex's primary job, state agency archivist, is to dive into these collections where they're literally straight from the agency and they've never been processed and making heads or tails in, in order of what we've got. Um, and we do the same thing with county records where they come in straight from a clerk of court or from register of deeds. Um, so this is a unique case where we're taking a collection that was already processed, but processed so long ago that it merited a reprocessing to make sure that every voice and every story in the collection is documented. Uh, the, the difficulty compared to, say, special collections, uh, which I think may be getting into your question, in government records, we do have to maintain the provenance and series primarily of how it was created to document the way the government affairs operated. So, like Alex said, you know, we have to document that this series is on moving rocks. This record group, you know, this particular box says that it is ledgers for cash deposits to build a canal because that's what it's labeled as from the state agency and we are trying to document the state agency's operations and in archives parlance it means we are trying to preserve the evidentiary value of the collection. In special collections you have a little bit more leeway to arrange materials that preserve that but also highlight subjects and you can maybe have a series specifically on enslaved persons we can't do that and that's why we use things like the lib guide and the finding aid to allow for researchers to go by subject or by topic as opposed to um, just thinking oh this is just about a port or this is just about dredging there's a lot more to it so we have to use these additional tools yeah, and I think also, too, you have an issue of scale. So I would say if you're thinking about the treasures and comptrollers, papers as a whole, I mean, there are hundreds of boxes. And there's, you know, I mean, if we were to try to say we're going to list every single item in every single folder, just the, the sheer scale, it would be an unwieldy amount of information. So you kind of have to get creative in some ways to say, okay, you know, these are some really interesting things. They didn't show up in the description, so they weren't really discoverable. Like, how can we make this kind of information discoverable to patrons? And I think that's been our approach for this whole project. I know I was always telling Caroline, I was like, let's take a social history approach. Like, who, you know, who are we finding that wasn't in this original finding aid? Like, who's being left out? Who can we, you know, bring more attention to and make more, you know, discoverable in this series? Uh, so I think that that's really sort of what's guided our approach to some of these ideas, such as the LibGuide and even just working to expand the description. And I think that ultimately for the researcher, our hope is that they will be using materials from government records and from special collections to create a more holistic view, a more complete view of the history. That's why your unit, John, oral history can come in, although probably not for the 1700s. No, I don't. I don't uh, but <laughs> private collections and organizational records, you know, military records, it creates a narrative and also with other archival repositories there's a good chance some of these families that are mentioned in here may the enslaver families may have been prominent enough to leave behind papers that aren't necessarily at the state archives in north carolina they may be at another institution but looking at those private papers and then looking at this the government record of this day of this labor uh, that was unpaid and was forced creates the com the more complete picture. I won't never say the complete picture because we have archival silences, sure. but a more complete picture than uh, what researchers could have found given the finding aids 
in you know several years ago. Yeah, it's a multivalence approach. I love it. Um, I think it's a very admirable goal. I think LibGuide is loophole for for uh, government records to sort of describe things with with a little bit more um, uh, depth is terrific. So I appreciate that. I think bringing up points like um, the juxtaposition of freedom and enslavement here is just amazing, and I think that that's worth. Uh, the free price of admission alone um, to come in and see how this building that that in particular the capital is is a, is a, is a marquee of, of freedom and it was in part built by enslaved hands and then you know talking about the ports and you're talking about people coming to ser- search for their free ancestors generally white who would have come over not finding them not looking closely to see that part of property manifest were other people and enslaved people and it's it is i think that doing this work bringing this up is fantastic and i commend it and i want everybody to go and find, look through treasures and comptrollers even though it's that title is a little bit on the snooze inducing the content certainly isn't so i really appreciate your time um and i want to thank you all for being here and i want to thank you for listening to Connecting the Docs. I am your host, John Horan, and we've had three great guests. I'll let them say bye. Thank you, John, for having us. This, uh, this is Josh Hager from Records Description Unit, and I want to thank you again. Yep. Yeah, this is Alex Dowry, the State Agency Records Description Archivist. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Sure thing. And yeah, thank you for listening. This is Caroline Waller. I am the Digital Description Archivist with the Records Description Unit. Perfect. And as I said, I am John Horan. Thank you for listening to Connecting the Docs. Next time we will have a discussion, more discussion on LibGuides and Manumission, and um, you will get to hear our intern extraordinaire, Annabeth Poe, interview um, our fabulous summer intern, Hannah Nicholson. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to our producers, Katie Crickmore, Shauna Carr, Danielle Shirillo, and once again to our intern extraordinaire, Annabeth Poe. And again, to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast, Judy Allen Dotson. We hope you enjoyed this episode of season four of Connecting the Docs. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People.